You are listening to the Homeland Heroes Salute, sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by Dairy Cam. This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. No views expressed in this podcast represent any of the uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute. My name is Alyssa, and joining me today as guest host is Art Briggs. We are joined again by Jesse. To hear the first part of Jesse's story, you can go back and listen to our previous episode. Welcome back, Art and Jesse. How are you? Doing good. Great to be here again. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, we're excited to dive into the second part and hear about your experience, Jesse, um, with deployment and all of that and kind of what that entails. Art, I'll let you take it away. Sure. Uh, I think last time we were together, Jesse, we talked about your movement from high school, you know, in between junior and senior year, going to basic training. And uh, we didn't really get deep into that, but you talked a lot about how much stress and turmoil was in your life. And I'm just amazed at your resiliency as a human being. And, and you gave mad props to your friends that kind of like supported you through that process. And, the, and even your friend that was the reverend that took you in. Uh, I'm just amazed at humanity. It's so relieving to hear in these times that there's people that care about other people in our left and right flank. So uh, as we're looking forward, you graduate high school, but then you have to like really continue training and you get to go back into a training pipeline called AIT, which is the Army's version of advanced individual training. What was your job? What was that like to have that break in between basic training and AIT? And you're now 19. You were one of the youngest initially. Now you're a little bit older than most of the kids, I imagine, that are going through that pipeline. Talk, talk to us through that AIT segment. So I had two MOSs. Um, my first job, I went to AIT, uh, I want to say it was January of 97. And I went to Fort Jackson for a 63 Bravo, which is light wheel vehicle mechanic. And um, I had to fight with the Texas National Guard to let me get that MOS because I transferred from New Hampshire National Guard down to Texas to live with my sister. And the chauvinist jackass recruiter that I had to get in touch with to transfer was like, oh, but you have an excellent admin score. Like you'd be really, I'm sure you would much more enjoy that better than being a mechanic. It's hard work, it's so hard. And I was like, um, no, that's what I wanna freaking do. So put me in for it. And he was like, Oh, well, are you sure? Like he would argue with me about this for like a good solid minutes. And finally I was trying so hard not to lose my shit. And I was just finally, I was like, this is what I want to do. Is there somebody else I need to talk to? And he was like, no, I'll put it in. I'll put it in. And um, it took almost six months before they could send me because I had transferred one state to another and it kind of screwed me because I didn't get full credit for that first year um, in the guard 
There's something complicated that I didn't fully understand at the time, but it had to do with like, you have to earn so many unit points to be able to get a full credit for a guard year. And uh, I was a little pissed off about that, but I got over it. So I was pretty excited about going. AIT was amazing. Uh, Fort Jackson, I was actually in E3 when they sent me. So that's private first class, which is pretty decent if you're like, you know, um, a lot of kids just go straight from basic to AIT and they don't get promoted. And uh, when I got there, like instantly, again, enjoyed the atmosphere of training and, you know, being pushed to be a better soldier. And I always loved um, PT, but I also really enjoyed learning about how to fix things because um, I was always really good with my hands. Like I was, I played basketball, I was a goalie in soccer, I lifted weights, I played track. So all this stuff like kind of came together because my father was an engineer. I kind of had some of that in my genes and I always loved trying to figure out how things worked. So it was me and there was like maybe five or six other females in our group. I can't remember how many were in our platoon but there was not a lot of females in our class. And I liked it that way because it just seemed like I always got along better with guys than I did girls, especially like really feminine girls. I just never really got along with them that well. I just couldn't relate to them. And we had a lot of fun. My best friend in AIT, her name was Erica Arrow. And I wish I knew where she was right now because I have lost track of her and would love to reach out to her at some point. But the last I heard, she pissed hot for weed when she was stationed in Hawaii and um, they they discharged her from the service. But um, when I was in AIT, Erica like kind of was took me under her wing like I did for a lot of people. She protected me. And, and it wasn't that I needed protecting. It was just that she cared about me. So she wanted to protect me. Um, and she recognized that I was struggling with my sexuality. She wasn't gay, but she, um, she could tell that I was struggling. And we had a lot of conversations. Like eventually I, I told her, I was like, I think I'm gay, but I'm really afraid to like accept it or come out. And I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me. Now, at, at that time, because I'm the the don't ask, don't tell has now been gone for about ten years. Is that correct? Technically, it was official in I think it was June of 2011 that it finally like was implemented. Okay, so it's been about nine years then, because um, yep. we're recording this now in in June of 2020. So. Can you explain, I guess, for people that one are a younger generation where this is no longer an issue or something that's really like, you know, my generation, I'm mid 20s. People don't bat an eye over your sexual orientation, Um, but older generations do. Can you explain a little bit about what that don't ask, don't tell meant? and what it meant for service members who essentially were forced to be closeted? Well, I had an eye-opening question from someone a while ago 
and they asked me like, you know, what kind of um, peers or like, was there any sort of um, celebrities or anything like that that helped encourage you to come out? And I was like, we didn't have anything when I was, you know, when I came out of the closet, there was nobody in public that was like fully out. And if they were, they were chastised. I was like, I can't think of anybody that like I looked at in a public figure and was like, oh, I, I respect them. Maybe people will respect me like that. Like, I just couldn't think of it. Yeah. And um, and it, it's just amazing to me, the representation that we have nowadays, such a drastic change. And, and I don't think kids understand, like, I don't think they fully comprehend how much has changed. Um since like 25 years ago. I think even even in the last 10 years, I remember I was in high school. um, I graduated in 2011. Um, Even then it was kind of, there was almost a stigma still around it Mm -hmm. where I was very active in the civil rights um, organizations growing up. So I was always like, I'm not going to judge you for who you are and how you feel on the inside. Like I've always been about live your truth, but just to see the what's gone on in the last 10 years has been, I think even, even just drastic. And then to go back another 25 is almost mind boggling how far we've come with certain things. Yeah. um, Which is really awesome at the same time. Absolutely. I think, um, like, I was terrified that somebody would find out. I, I was not comfortable talking to anybody, but um, I called her Arrow because we always called each other by our last names. Um, she was the only person I fully felt comfortable with talking to about it. And, um, and she's the one who's like, who gives a shit? Just be yourself. She's yeah. like, you're the one who's got to live your life. You're the one who, you know, gets to decide if you're happy or not. You can't leave that on other people to make those decisions for you. And it was just how she said it and the way she said it and how safe she made me feel and how I've always kind of had this defiant, like rebel, like don't fully follow the rules kind of attitude that just encouraged me to try to find a way to make it work where I could still be in the military, but still be authentic. And that was a hard road to travel at first. I really had a chip on my shoulder. Yeah, so Jess, I wanna jump in there because I feel like we are uh, now nine years past the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So what would have happened if you lived like you are today for the, for the people that are listening on the podcast that don't have military service before that day, what would have happened to you if you lived your truth then? Um, more than likely somebody would have reported it and I would have been discharged um, for don't ask, don't tell if I had chosen to be fully out to everyone and been like really obvious about my sexuality. Yeah. So discharged means, uh, judicious judicially kicked out of the military, meaning with prejudice, like it would be something that was, was not an honorable discharge. Correct. Right. Absolutely. I had several friends go through that 
process before I joined and then um, a few while I was in. And it was definitely a scary thing to hear about, like the fact that it had nothing to do with your ability to be a soldier and nothing to do with like, you know, whether or not you could do your job. It just had to do with the fact that it was another way to um, decide who they wanted in the military and who they didn't. It was it was another prejudice process. Yeah, I think I think um, when you're talking about that, many people will miss like your friend is saying like, oh, who cares? Just cut be your, be yourself, live your truth. Like that is rewarding in the personal relationship, but professionally you, you weren't able to actually live that truth. Even, even if you wanted to be doing that, there was a huge, huge responsibility and cost associated with that like financially and professionally and resume wise. Like there, there, there's a huge cost for our veterans that served in our military that were gay and transgender, bi, gay, LGBTQ+, they had to stomach this reality that if you are who you are, you will be punished, right? Right. So I, I just want to say from, from my, my own self, like, thank you for being so brave to be who you are today. And, and I'm very deeply sorry and in pain that you had to go through such a trying experience in service to our country and i can only say that from from our briggs right i can only say that for me but i hope that you hear that as authentic and it means something to you because i, I do i look back and i see what so many people as we're li living this this era now of like hey we aren't treating all people equal we aren't uh hearing the stories of injustice and and when i hear it it just it, it does it bothers my heart because I can't imagine what it would be like to want to serve your country and then really have to suppress a huge part of your life in order to do so. So I'm sorry you had to do that. And I respect you greatly for enduring uh, those trying times. So if I can push further into um, 63 Bravo light wheeled vehicle mechanic, Fort Jackson, and you get done with the training pipeline there, where do you go? You're a National Guard soldier now in Texas? Yeah, um, so I went back to Texas and originally I was um, drilling out of, I think it was Gatesville, I can't remember exactly, but um, the guys in the shop loved me so much. They're like, you should apply for a full-time job at North Fort Hood, the mates department. And I was like, really? They're like, yeah, you make really good money and you're a good trooper, you'd be good at it. So. Um, I had a, a sergeant like vouch for me and I applied for a job at, uh, it was a full-time National Guard job at North Fort Hood and I got it. And, um, and I was like working on Humvees and stuff and I loved it and I was having a blast. Um, and at that time, when I came back from AIT, I started dating women and I always felt like I was looking over my shoulder because even though Texas is huge and there's like a lot of, you know, space between um, towns, um, I still felt like I couldn't fully relax. Like, you never know, you might bump into somebody if you're in the wrong area or like if, if somebody's going to like, 
look and be like, oh, who's that? Why is she with her? What's happening there? Um, so was not like fully public about um, like I wasn't out to everybody, but I was out to my sister and some of the friends I had made in the town we were living in. But I was definitely not out to anybody in my unit. And I was having a hard time, like not really finding my way quite yet just still kind of struggling and, and stumbling through life. And it got to the point where like my sister and I were fighting a lot. I don't remember why. I think it had to do with like, we were renting a house. My niece was living there and she was just having a hard time with the fact that I was not a kid anymore and she couldn't control me. And we, we were just kind of like bouncing off each other and it wasn't working. Um, so eventually I moved back to New Hampshire. Um, I had to quit my full-time job at Fort Hood, which really sucked because I loved it. And I transferred back to my old unit. And that unit was out of Manchester. It was 197th Field Artillery Brigade. And I worked with, there was, I think there was six or seven of us in the maintenance section. And I loved those guys, like most of them except for one individual who was a total jerk. Most of them were pretty amazing guys, but I had a chip on my shoulder when I showed up because I was still like, I can't be myself. And it was probably six months after drilling. This my friend, John, who to this day, we are still very good friends. was like walking me out to the car because it was the end of drill. And he's just, you know, he's talking with me and, He's like, hey, you know, I, I, I noticed like you get really tight lipped when we start talking about our relationships, like our wives and our girlfriends and stuff. Like you notice you really don't talk much about your life. And I want you to know that you're safe in our section. Like you can trust the guys and we don't we don't have any judgment about what your life is like. Like we just we want you to feel safe and comfortable with us. But. He's like, you can, you can tell me what's going on. And I looked at him and I was like, no, I can't. I can't talk about my life with you. What are you talking about? And, and he just, I don't know. He had this look and this presence. And I was like, all right, fine. I'm freaking gay. And I told him. And he, he was like, yeah, I kind of figured that. <laughs> like, like, it wasn't obvious or anything, Jesse. But so from then on, it was like this, this weight that I was carrying around with me just felt like it was a little bit lighter and felt like I was a little safer and more comfortable because I could actually be myself around the guys in my section. But they always discouraged me. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. Because the biggest part about who I am is how important it is for me to be able to be authentic and to struggle with that. Like, it was so hard. That's why I was so angry all the time. That's why I just was like, fuck you, kiss my ass. Like, I don't give a shit. And I had a bad attitude for a while. And John just literally changed everything because he made me realize you don't have to trust everybody. You only have to give trust to people that deserve it. And it took a lot for me to like, let that happen. Um, but my enlistment, like, was coming up, 
And the guys kept trying to say, oh, come on, you should reenlist. You, re- you should reenlist because I had six year when I first enlisted, it was six years with two years IRR, which is like inactive ready reserves. And I didn't want to because I was like, no, I just want to be me. I just want to be gay and just get out of this shit. But I was so like torn because I loved being a soldier. And then um, right before I re-enlisted, we had a mission where we did our AT up. It was our annual training, two weeks up at um, Gagetown in Canada. And I rode up there with the training NCO, the full-time training NCO of our unit. And... um, we just totally hit it off and he took the time to like really get to know me. And he was like, you know, I think you'd be a great full-time national guard soldier. You just, you have this great attitude and you're just a goal getter. And I was like, well, I don't know. How do you go about doing that? Like, how do you even get a full-time national guard job? Like I got one in Texas, but it felt like it was like handed to me. And he's like, Oh, he's like, well, I can help walk you through that process. And I was like, well, maybe I should reenlist if I if I'm gonna do this and and I can get a good job. Maybe that's what I should do. Um, so eventually, I was convinced to reenlist, even though I wasn't like super thrilled about still being partially in the closet. Um, and I got a full time job up in Concord at the warehouse, and they tried to help me change my MOS. It got really disheveled like the national guard is so difficult to like get stuff done because they don't have the same kind of funding as federal and so eventually i did start taking a a school but then i got another full-time job in the guard working as the unit clerk um, for my unit down in manchester so i was was at the warehouse for about a year then they transferred me to the the unit um, and I was the unit clerk, which is totally different. It was another, it was like admin stuff I was learning. I didn't know anything about computers because I was such a uh, wrench turner, but I, I was willing to learn. And um, I was learning how to do my job when 9-11 happened. And I think it was like, I think everybody kind of knew when, when 9-11 happened that we were all going to deploy at some point. It was like this gut-wrenching, like, punch, like, shit is going to hit the fan. You might as well mentally prepare yourself for that. Um, so I just remember as soon as we got the notification that we were going to deploy, it was November of 2003 that we were told, and we deployed in January of 2004. Jesse, you were saying... Uh, you- you got notified in November, you're a national guard, you're up here in New Hampshire, you have a full-time job and it's November of 03. And they're like, Hey, January in two months, you're going to Iraq. Get ready. What does that mean? What does that look like? And my goodness, that's gotta be scary. It was, everybody was like panicking because it was like right at the beginning of when they were like, oh, I guess we're going to have to deploy National Guard soldiers over too because we just don't have enough freaking troops in the in the active duty side. And all of a sudden, all these overweight, out of shape soldiers with medical issues were like getting kicked out like freaking hotcakes. Like 
we didn't realize we probably lost like 30 people and we only had 110. So we had to have like 30 people transferred into our unit because it was like the system wasn't working, you know, like they, there was a lot of good old boy stuff happening and, oh, it's okay. We'll just have you retake your PT test later or, you know, it's all right. You're, you're only, you know, 50 pounds overweight. We can help you lose that weight. And there was no like push to like hold people to the standard before all this happened. And a lot has changed since then. <laughs> um, but it was, it was, a, it was a lot of panicking, especially as a unit clerk. It was like, holy crap, I have no idea what's going on. Cause I didn't even complete my MOS training. And they were like, yeah, you're going to deploy. And my commander pulled me aside and he was like, Hey, Tustin, he's like, I really want you to come with us. I, I want you there. Cause I, I think you're an excellent soldier and I want you there. He's like, but I want to give you the option. Do you want to finish your MOS school or do you want to come with us? And I was like, I'm coming with you, sir. Like, I'll finish the school when I finish the school. I want to be there with my unit. I want to be with my guys. And he was like, all right. And um, with that said, I started smoking again <laughs> after two years of quitting because it was just nonstop, balls to the walls, constantly planning, you know, sending paperwork, faxes, filling in documentation, like just tons of stuff. And this is really before, like we had computers and we were doing stuff with computers, but we still did a lot of paperwork with carbon copy, believe it or not. <laughs> and it was just so much to get done in such a short period of time. And it was more like six weeks than two months. And we um, mobilized out of Fort Drum. So uh, that was kind of chaotic. And at the time I had a girlfriend, we were living together with my best friend, Julie. And we literally, um, it was, we, we had a really hard time with this process. Like we both struggled with it because she wasn't happy with the fact that I didn't want to come. I didn't want her to come with me on the send off for my unit. Um, she wanted to come inside and say goodbye to me. And I was like, no, I don't think you should. I think it'd be better if you just dropped me off. And I couldn't even kiss her in the parking lot. And I know that hurt her. It hurt me. And I felt horrible about doing it. But I didn't want anything to jeopardize my ability to stay in the service. So I walked in there right before we deployed. I walked in on the drill hall. We were getting ready to load up into our trucks. And I, it, it was like somebody like knocked all the wind out of my lungs because I just felt so horrible. And it, was, it took everything I had not to cry. I was trying to look strong. I was trying to be strong. And um, my friend Deb walked up to me. She happened to be gay as well. She's like, hey, buddy, you okay? Because she, oh, it wasn't Deb. It was somebody else. I can't remember who it was now. It'll take me a minute. But they walked up and they're like, hey, buddy, are you okay? I'm like, no, not really, but I'll be all right. Don't worry about it. So that was the start of like, oh, shit. Like, I really have to check myself right now because 
this is a full full time thing. We're going to be around active duty and guard and all sorts of branches of the military while we're deployed. I'm really going to have to get my shit um, together for this whole deployment. I'm going to have to try to hold it all in and like I didn't. It was it was really hard at first, but when we started training at Fort Drum. I realized, like, you know, I don't need to really wear a sign to advertise the fact that I'm a lesbian. It kind of fits some of the stereotypes of a lesbian, the short hair and the athleticness and whatever. So I, it doesn't bother me. I used to joke because I had a yellow pickup truck with a rainbow sticker on the back that said Butch, just because I wanted to <laughs> kind of like, um, push the envelope a little with some of the people in my unit. <laughs> so people knew, I just didn't talk about it. And when we started training, it was like everybody that was really comfortable with me and felt like it was okay to bring it up would talk about it. So I got comfortable. I got comfortable with most of the people in my unit. Um, and it really wasn't what I thought it wasn't a big deal until I was at Fort Drum and we were training at the gym and this officer, female officer walks into the freaking changing room and looks at me and she's like, soldier, your hair is out of regulation. I'm like, no, it's not, ma'am. I actually have the regulation right here. I keep it in my pocket. <laughs> and she's <laughs> like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I've had so many people complain to me about it that I wanted to make sure that they could see the regulation. So I pulled it out of my pocket and I was like, it says right here, it's not trendy and it's not like touching my shoulders or my ears and my commander approves it. So therefore it's within re regulation. She got so freaking pissed. She turned around and like walked, like bolted out of the freaking gym. And I was like, what the hell is that all about? Like, I just, I never understood it because my commander loved the fact that when I came back from basic training, I chopped all my hair off because I didn't think it was right that men had to have all their hair cut off, but women didn't. I was like, why is there this double standard? If we want to be treated as equals and I want to be looked at and respected as an equal, I want to follow the same standards. So I cut all my hair off and I've had my hair short ever since. So I got used to people complaining to me about it because they thought it was like, a masculine haircut. I'm like, no, it's a military fucking haircut. Get over it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And plus it was like, I'll be the one who defines my femininity. Thank you very much. So just like I said, never. So, wow. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I would imagine. So I'm obviously not female. Like you would expect to have some sort of like support in in the sense of like, hey, we're all females trying to, uh, because you are the minority in the military still today in 2020. Um, you would have expected not somebody coming at you because you look different, but kind of supporting you. So I'm I'm shocked, and that might be surprising to you that I'm shocked. <laughs> it is a little surprising because. I mean, there are all types of people in the military. Um, I always was surprised when females weren't supportive of other females, but I, it kind of like, 
the surprise slowly dissipated as it continued to happen. So it was it was discouraging because I ran into a lot of like senior enlisted or female officers who tried to give me a hard time, but it never worked in their favor. So. Oh, wow. I, again, I'm just at this place like you had so much uphill battles just to be in the service. I'm impressed. So you're at you're at Fort Drum. Home of the Frozen Chosen. Uh, it's colder there than it is in New Hampshire. You're there yeah. in December and January to get you ready for Baghdad or Iraq, which is completely, completely different climate. Uh, and you you board a plane out of Wheeler Air Air Base there in Fort Drum. And what what kind of airplane are you on? What is that like as you prepare to fly across the Atlantic to go probably to Germany and then? hop on down to Kuwait. What's that look like? So um, I was part of the detail that actually had to load the bottom of the plane with all our gear. And um, we got to go out and see the belly of the plane. And it was a civilian plane, but it was like, I want to say it was like six seats across with a split in the middle. So three on three each side. And I just remember, like, it was so cool to be inside the bottom of the plane because I'd never seen it before. And um, we were all just kind of having fun, trying to make the best of it, the suck. As you know, like, you just um, embrace the suck in the military. So we we're just loading it up. And um, I think I didn't get emotional until I literally sat down on the plane next to my friend Jeff. And they started backing away from um, the, the Mac getting ready to pull out and take off. And I just looked at Jeff and I instantly had tears in my eyes. Like I had no control. And um, I just, we, we were really good friends because he was, um, he was in my, he was in the maintenance section with me before I moved over to the admin, the S1 office. And I just like wrapped my arms around him and he held me while I cried. So like a lot of people might be surprised about that, but um, I have friends of all kinds and I always felt like if a friend needed to cry on my shoulder, I'd hold them. It didn't matter who they were. So we're like flying to Ireland. We stopped in Ireland for probably a couple of hours, I think. And then we flow, flew into Italy and we're there for like four hours, I think, before we landed in Kuwait. So Kuwait is just like Fort Drum's climate. Not at all. It's drastically different. No? <laughs> so um, we went from negative 50 degree wind chill factor. Oh, by the way, I was being trained as a machine gunner because my commander loved me so much. He wanted me to be a machine gunner to set the example and um, so I was on the range almost every freaking day while we were at Fort Drum. Um, and I loved it. I loved it, but it was cold as fuck. What, what, is, what, is, what does frostbite feel like? Luckily, I was good about bundling up, but I got a funny story. You don't have to share it if you don't want to, but I'll tell it anyways. My friend John and I were wearing bear suits at the range and John had to go to the bathroom. You know those like outdoor um, bathrooms where they dig the, the ditch underneath and there's cement and you just like pee in the freaking toilet hole. 
it it drops down into this freaking ditch. So John like open said, pit bathroom, yep. Yeah. So he said he opened up his bear suit. He's peeing into the hole. He hears water hitting water. And then he doesn't hear it. He doesn't know why. And then he goes to close his suit. And apparently had peed all over the bear suit. And it hit. It splashed up against him. And he was like, at first it was really nice. It was like nice and warm and cozy. He's like, but then I had to lay down on the ground. <laughs> and he's like, I was pretty sure I was going to have like a penis popsicle. Like, <laughs> everything was frozen. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, what were you thinking? <laughs> you should have dried yourself off. <laughs> but um, that's John. <laughs> so anyways, uh, yeah, huge difference in temperature um, between Iraq and, and Fort Drum. We were there at... Yeah, so Kuwait, you, you, land in, you, land in, you land in Kuwait. What is, the, what is the temperature there? So everybody knows negative 50 wind chill a man can't find his extremity to urinate and you <laughs> are freezing your tail off. Right. And you fly, you, you stop at a couple of different spots, but you finally get to Kuwait and you open the door to the airplane. And what do you experience? It was like, um, somebody threw me in the worst armpit I've ever smelled. Uh, Ooh. yeah, it was awful. I think it was 140 degrees. And of course, um, we didn't have all our gear yet. They had to take us to Arab John. I think that's where we got our gear. And I mean, they threw us in these buses. All the buses had these like um, curtains all the way around them. One to keep the sun out, but also to like protect people inside. So it was harder to see who was in there. And uh, I just remember thinking to myself, I didn't know my eyeballs could sweat. I didn't know this was possible. I've never sweated so much in my life. And um, why the fuck do people live here? So it was just so extreme. It was such a huge change. But um, we were in Kuwait for about 10 days before we drove up into Iraq. And uh, my commander made me the, the lead machine gunner on the, the first gun truck. Um, which I took as an honor. He was like, you're vigilant. You're, you know, you're really good at your job. We want you, we want you to be the lead gun, the lead gunner. So um, that was pretty intense. First mission, first time going into a country, not knowing what to expect because our job was basically, even though we were field artillery, we were doing convoy security with in the beginning this was before rumsfeld had his ass held to the fire uh we didn't have any armored vehicles so we had a hillbilly like up armor most of our vehicles um which was also like unnerving because <laughs> like we would use the sheet metal for doors and we're like wow let's test it out and see how good it is like stopping a bullet or like you know you know, maybe some sort of debris or something, right? So we brought it to the range and bullets went right through it. We're like, oh, okay. So maybe it's okay for like explosions. I don't know. <laughs> oh my God. It was so bad. Because <laughs> they didn't give a shit about National Guard. You know, it was like, oh, you're National Guard. You don't give a shit. But then. Well, in, in, fairness, in fairness, in fairness, active duty, we're driving the same, same truck. Right. It's true. It's true. 
It was just you guys yeah. got the armored vehicles before we did, um, you know. And so there was a lot of like complaints coming back from not just soldiers, not just military people, but family members. Like, why the fuck is my kid getting shot at and he's not being fully protected? Like, where is the gear? Yeah, soft skin Humvees were absolutely used to go into combat when we had the technology. That's wild to think about, but we see all these up armored vehicles of, you know, today. And, and then when, the reality is when you went up from Arif John, there wasn't. So if I can get you back, you're the lead gunner, you're up, you got your goggles on, you are, you have that air conditioning coming up from the truck. No, so you're you nice and cool. <laughs> There was um, no you don't have air conditioning? <laughs> no, not at all. Like, oh, oh, that's surprising. Uh, so you're you're just enjoying the the cool breeze of Kuwait, and <laughs> you have you have the what, what kind of gun do you have? Two forty Bravo, fifty cal. Oh God, it was a two forty. No, it was a sixty. It was a sixty that was falling apart. We didn't have replacement parts, and that's all we had. So I literally was holding this thing together half the time. I remember going on a mission and hitting um, a ditch so hard that the buttstock came flying back and I caught it in midair. Wow. And oh, my, Lord have mercy. I know. I brought it back to my supply sergeant. I'm like, I can't fucking use this thing anymore. It's not reliable. Come on. We got to do something. And he's like, I ordered 240s. We finally got approved for it. They're coming in. Um, he's like, I can give you a 249 for now. You can have a 249. I was like, fine, but I can't use this anymore. It's ridiculous. So, yeah. So, for those people, what? me, um, <laughs> what <laughs> these numbers represent? It's usually like the caliber of, of the gun or the barrel, or it's like it, maybe you can explain it better, Art, because I'm not an expert on weapons. I just know how to shoot them. Yep. For, for every for everybody that's listening that's not familiar, M two four nine is a squad automatic weapon, and it's used for anti personnel. M two forty is a seven seven six. It's a bigger caliber. Uh, the squad automatic weapon is five five six, and then the fifty cal is a fifty cal M one, uh, and it shoots a much larger round. And then there's the uh, Mark nineteen that shoots a grenade which is very exhilarating and they're all automatic weapons and, yeah. and they get mounted to a vehicle for uh, security so uh, back to the story does that answer your question Alyssa? does that clarify yeah. okay uh jesse you're you're crossing the border into iraq with your your cool gal sunglasses on uh you're ready to you're ready to rock and roll what is it like to cross there's, there's a berm for those those that haven't crossed the border on a, in a vehicle. There's a road and then there's a berm as far as you can see. And, and you know, like one side is Kuwait and the other side is Iraq. What's going through your mind as a, a, a young woman that is in a country that's nothing like Nashua, New Hampshire or Fort Drum, New York, and you're, you're locked and loaded. You're, you're hot. You're ready to, ready to defend what is yours. What, what does that feel like? Where is, where's your brain? My brain was like, don't fuck this up. You are like the first line of defense. You could stop shit from escalating before it even happens. 
like keep your eyes peeled. Like I, I would not, I couldn't even think about relaxing or being tired because I was just so focused on like, what's that? What's that over there? What's that? Like, what could happen if this happens? And I was just, my hyper vigilance just kicked in. Like my brain was like, okay, I got this. I know how to handle this. I can do this. I can do that. And so I was just constantly um, playing scenarios in my head, constantly um, turning and changing my view so that I could make sure that I wasn't missing any sort of details that were happening in front of me. Um, it was it was pretty insane. It was really intense. Like my adrenaline was rushing for almost the whole time. I can't remember how long the drive was because um, I was so hyper-focused on just doing my job. Um, I just, I think it was six hours, but I can't remember because we went to Cedar too. That's where our, um, we were stationed when we first got there. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that part of your story with us. So you spent how long in Iraq in 2004? I was in Iraq for a year. I can't remember the exact dates because the day you leave. So that doesn't matter. A yeah. year. But it was, we were there for a year, a solid 12 months. So without going into any details that you don't want to go into, can you just give us uh, an understanding of what it's like to be uh, a woman uh, from the National Guard in, a, in, that, in that theater for that year? Like, what, what would you say you want to share with people, like, to help them understand what it was like for you? And, and if, if your sexuality is part of it, too, I'd be interested in understanding that because a year is a long time. And you build very intimate relationships with those that are at your right and left. Yeah, I, um, I would say for sure, there's a lot. Of, it was very complex. Um, so we lived in tent cities at Cedar, too. And like I said, I don't always get along with um, females. So it was tough adjustment for me because I had to live um, almost every day I had to live with females in my tent. Like there was probably five or six of us in a tent together. And there was a few times where we would switch tents because we wanted to murder each other. Cause like, I gotta, you know, women getting on the same cycle in an environment like that is just fucking scary. Um, but also <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't have a lot of tolerance for bullshit and because um, I was full time and uh, I also was like, you know, one of those, even though I was only, I was a corporal when we got there. Um, they wanted to promote me, but because I didn't have the MOS in the slot, they couldn't promote me. So I was a corporal and I was considered a leadership position even though I wasn't getting paid to be a leader and I had to put up with a lot of bullshit I was in charge of a lot of details um a lot of these females had to work with me for me and it was tough at first it was a tough adjustment for all of us but um most of us were very supportive of each other there was 20 females in my unit um we had we were really top heavy because we were a brigade so we had a lot of officers in the unit, a lot of senior enlisted in our unit. Um, 
So you, if you were lower enlisted, you were screwed because you're getting stuck with shitty details. Um, if we weren't doing convoy security, we were doing crappy details. And when I first got there, we were probably working a solid 16 hour days, if not more. We're lucky to be able to, like, I wasn't hungry at all. I lost 20 pounds I didn't have to lose. I forced myself to eat breakfast. And then I would eat like, you know, a little bit of snacks here and there, but not much because I was drinking so many fluids. Uh, and that was the funny part. Like one of the first missions we went on um, after we had settled in, uh, I think I was a, a gunner. Well, it was a shooter. They called them shooters because I was in a, a contractor's truck with him. Um, and I remember he went by Big T. And because my last name was Tustin, he liked calling me Little T. And... <laughs> And we're sitting there, like driving along, driving along, and they decide they're going to pull over on the side of the road in the middle of freaking like nowhere and pee. And I'm like, well, I really like to pee, but I don't know how I'm going to go about doing this because I'm wearing all this gear. I don't, I don't want to take it off. Um, and I had to figure out how I was going to pee. So I got really comfortable with the the fact that, it, you know, people are going to see my white ass in the middle of the desert. And um, <laughs> I didn't really care because I wanted to pee. Um, but I also learned how to regulate how much fluids I was taking in. So I didn't have to pee as often, which may not have been good for you, but I figured it out. And I also learned how to pee in a Gatorade bottle while Javi was driving. Um, all skills that you really don't need as you get older, but, you know, good to have. Um, funny, funny mission. I bought what they call a female urinary device and I didn't tell any other guys on the mission. And when we pulled over to pee, I pulled out my FUD, is what we call it, and I peed on the tire. And they were like, what the fuck, Tustin? How the hell are you doing that? And it was like a few days before I decided I needed to practice with this thing because I did not want to like make a mess all over myself because it's like a funnel. And you like hold it up against yourself. And when you pee in it, if you pee too fast, it fills up and it overflows and it will like flood down your legs. Oh. But if you can control your stream, then it works. And that was really hard for me. Like it was really hard for me to figure that out. But it was funny because two of my best friends were in the bathroom when I'm testing this thing out. They come in and they're like, what the fuck are you doing? And I told them, like, that's awesome. That's so cool. And then they tried to figure out how they could pee standing up without a FUD. <laughs> so... So you know, like things women have to navigate, you know, while you're deployed. Um, but the other thing, the, the side of that that's really hard to talk about, but I will talk about it because it should be um, discussed, is there was a lot of um, sexual harassment and assault things happening while we were in Iraq, particularly um, at Cedar. There was some guy going around raping girls in their sleep. And um, just so you know, like the tents, they're a lot like a circus tent kind of, but they always put these wooden doors on the front of them to, to make yep. it easier to go in and out. So you didn't have to like tie a flap. Um, so you couldn't really secure a circus tent and keep assholes out of it. Um, so we all knew about this happening and they, they were trying to catch this guy 
Um, but I started sleeping with a knife under my pillow and my weapon in between my legs. And because I was the senior ranking, you know, and I was, like I said, I've always been a protector, like a sheep dog. I've just always had that personality. Um, I couldn't sleep. I was like looking at the door all the time, like waiting for all of my soldiers to come back, like my females to come back to the tent. And I was having the hardest time like relaxing until my best friend, Shally was like, look, buddy, you've got to get some sleep. This is not good. Like you're, you're working too hard. You need sleep. And uh, she's like, why don't you try listening to music? So I had to force myself to um, wear headphones and, and listen to music. And that's when I started, like we had CD players. Okay. I'm aging myself, but CD players back then. And people were just starting to get MP3 players, but I had a CD player. And I was listening to Coldplay. I'm trying to remember the one, but I would play it over and over and over because it was relaxing and it would help me actually fall asleep. But no matter what, I always had my gun in between my legs and my knife under my pillow. Um, and I so to, 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 to help, I want to jump in there, Jesse, if I can, just to, to really magnify what, what you're talking about, because if you haven't been there, uh, it, it, it sounds like it, it almost sounds like it's not being emphasized enough. So you go out on uh, security missions, meaning you're going out and securing an asset as the gunner. So from the time you leave the wire to the time you get back, it's super duper intense. You're working 16 hour days and then your, your only safe place, like what, what we call safe is the place where you sleep, the, the place where you come and, and you actually can close your eyes. At, at this point in time, at Cedar 2, there's a known rapist. And for every female that's sleeping, that in the back of their mind, in the place that they're supposed to have safety, there's like perimeter guards making sure that you, you know, the enemy doesn't overrun your position so you can sleep. In the back of your mind or in the forefront of your mind, you're thinking to yourself, like, I can't sleep hard because... If I do, something could happen to me or something could happen to my friend that's to my right or my left. Like I, it causes me to have like tightness of my chest to even imagine how exhausting uh, that must be. It's exhausting to be outside in Kuwait for an hour or in Iraq for an hour. It, it, it's exhausting even more so to be in full battle rattle. It's exhausting even more so to have somebody else's life in your hands. It's exhausting even more to be looking for IEDs or V-beds. It's exhausting even more to be looking for people of interest. It's exhausting. And then you're dehydrating yourself purposely so you don't have to stop and urinate on missions as a female. And then you go back and your place of rest or solitude is removed because there's a sexual predator. Like, oh my goodness. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. This is exactly what's happening. Not, not only that, the, the sexual predator is someone that is supposed to be on your side. Yeah, and at the time, we didn't know if it was a civilian contractor or if they were in the military or not. We had no idea. Um, wow. Cedar 2 was really large because it was a um, transport stop for the supply run. 
So there was constantly people coming in and out and in and out, and they would just stay one night and then go back out on their mission up north. Um, so it was really hard to figure out, never mind the fact that not all military police are trained on how to investigate certain investigations. Um, I just think there was, and the military has a horrible reputation of not um, protecting females or anyone for that matter, males too, because there's such a high military sexual trauma rate um, specifically on deployments, but also in the service as well. You just like, even if this guy did get caught, who's going to, you know, who's going to step up and, and vouch for him and protect him and basically tell this girl she's crazy and they'll send her home and discharge her because she like falsely accused him of rape. Like you never know how it's going to be twisted. Um, and, and yeah, I'm sounding a little condescending because I, I had a horrible experience with a friend um, when we came back from Iraq, which is definitely a story I'd like to share. So we come back from Iraq and we're at uh, Fort Drum for about a week. And we're demobbing and the commander wants to give us an opportunity to decompress before we get home because he doesn't want us getting in a bunch of trouble when we get home. So he lets us all go out. I think it was the second or third night we were there. Um, and we all get smashed because it literally, I only needed one drink. Like that's how skinny I was. That's how dehydrated I was. That's like, I hadn't drank alcohol the whole time I was over there. So um, it didn't take much for me and I didn't need much, but a friend of mine had like way too much, way too fast. And um, there was a warrant officer in our unit and he was like, oh, I'll take her back to the barracks, but she'll be fine. And I trusted him. No big deal. Okay, fine. And she was like, you know, one of my closest friends. So I'm obviously going to be looking out for her. So he takes her back and I get back to the barracks later that night. And she's not in her bunk. And I'm starting to freak out. Like, where the hell is she? Why isn't she here? So I run outside and I tell the guys, because we all just got back around the same time. And I was like, hey, can you check and see if um, she's still with the chief? And they're like, sure, we'll go, we'll go check and see if she's there. Because I'm like, I don't know where the hell she would go. Um, and so they, they come back and they bring her back to me. And as soon as they leave and she comes into the barracks, she throws herself on me and starts bawling. And I'm like, what's going on? What happened? And she's like, she couldn't say anything. She couldn't talk for like a good solid 45 minutes. She just kept crying. And I just held her the whole time. And I'm like, when you're, when you're ready, I'm here. You know, like, if you need to tell me what's going on, I'm here. And finally, she, she told me that he sexually assaulted her. And, wow. and I was like flabbergasted and disgusted and furious all at the same time. And then my other close friend came into the barracks and she was like, what's going on? And um, I had just like put my friend down to sleep, hoping she would get a little bit of rest. And I was like, I'm going to have to report this because I was trained as the equal opportunity rep in my unit. And I was like, I'm going to have to report it because it's on active duty time. And I had to tell the chain of command at least. 
Um, I didn't know what the process was for active duty. I just knew that I had to report it to the chain of command. So we get through this whole process of um, figuring out what needed to happen. But the initial person I reported it to was a training NCO, and then he reported it up to the commander. And then uh, Fort Drum told us that it had to have UCM, it's UCMJ investigation, and they got CID involved. Um, and it was a fucking nightmare because this guy, this warrant officer, basically, he had been in our unit for at least nine years. He was a state trooper and married with two kids. And he had a lot of respect from all of us until this happened. And then it was probably like eight or nine guys that were really close to him that decided to uh, vouch for him and be character witnesses for him at the trial. So needless to say, it took well, like a year or two before the trial happened. I can't remember how long, but it felt like too long. Um, and I was the lead witness for the prosecution. And through that process, these nine guys that I had known for about nine years decided that they were going to try and defamate my character by outing me to um, the judge. Um, and my JAG officer at Fort Drum said that had nothing to fucking do with the case and had it thrown out of um, the court. Now, I don't remember the proper wording or verbiage for that, but um, I will tell you that that was probably the biggest kick to my gut um, since I had decided to be in the service and stay in the service as the gay woman. It was a reminder that people will use whatever they can to hold against you if you piss them off. It doesn't matter if you're doing the right thing or you're doing your job. If you piss them off, they're gonna use stuff against you. Um, so I had a lot of bitterness when I came back um, from Iraq, dealing with this whole process, watching my friend be harassed by people in our unit because they blamed her for causing all of this drama instead of blaming the, the perpetrator. Um, and it was just so hard to be in the middle of all of it that I ended up um, transferring out of New Hampshire to Washington State. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I think it's very important, especially for anyone listening who's dealt with or has been sexually assaulted that even though your friend didn't have the outcome that she should have, um, you should still seek justice if something wrong has been hap that has happened to you. There was actually some good outcome that came about because he admitted to fraternization that was considered wow. a UCMJ action so they dishonorably discharged him. And because of that, he lost his state tro trooper job. Because if you have UCMJ action against you and you're dishonorably discharged, I believe you cannot hold or own a weapon. And therefore, you can't be a state trooper. Wow. Um, 
So he couldn't be in the military anymore and he couldn't be a state trooper anymore. Mistakes follow you. Yeah. Or your actions follow you, not mistakes, because by the sounds of it, it wasn't something that was a mistake on his part. Um, if he's admitting to at least something happened. Yeah. You know, you have to go into these things. Everyone makes choices. Right. And you have to, at the end of the day, live with your choices. And it sounds like he's going to bed with his. Yeah. Yeah, just, yeah I, I just want to point out, like, what I, what I heard from your story in the last episode, how people were there for you and listened to you and mentor you, the, you know, your friends in high school, your best friend through your basic training. And then um, Arrow, I believe was her name. And then yeah. you got the reverend that took you into her house. All of these people showed you and taught you compassion. And uh, to see an exercise in you for your friend that went through that incredibly terrible experience. I'm just really grateful, uh, not that that happened to your friend, but for your character and how you cared for your your battle, your your battle buddy, your friend, the person that you care about. So, uh, just really, really want to say that that's what we expect out of our service members. That's what we uh, look to when we think about a soldier is somebody that takes care of and seeks justice for and in defense of their their counterparts. So, uh, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that story. And uh, I hope I hope your friend is doing well today. She's an E8 and in full-time National Guard. She's amazing. She's amazing. That's awesome. Uh, so you get back, you get back to Nashua. You're you're uh, a war veteran, and uh, you go back to your National Guard job. Life is easy. No. <laughs> so when I was in Iraq, I actually met somebody really special, and she was living in Washington State. She was a reservist and uh, she convinced me to move to Washington state, especially after all the bullshit. Um, I was like, all right, fine. I'll resign from my AGR position and I'll just transfer to a national guard unit in Washington state. Probably not the best decision to make after you come back from a deployment. I don't recommend anybody make big decisions when they first come back from deployments. Like I would not ever recommend you do that. Um, but I did. That's what I did. So it was an adventure. I was young and dumb, and that's what we do. And I moved out to Washington State and had the hardest time finding a full-time job. And it probably took three or four months of just being nonstop um, persistent. Well, uh, she had a full-time job working at Washington State University. She was a professor. Um, she had her PhD in microbiology. So I was like, still didn't have my college degree. I've been doing some business college online, trying to find like something I could do outside of the military. And the only job I could find was an assistant manager at Toys R Us, which was a fucking nightmare. <laughs> um, I just can't tell you what kind of transition that was like. Because it was it was a bad idea, but I did it. I did it. And I I made it work somehow. I don't know. Um, but the the hardest part was like readjusting to like being around civilians, uh, driving. <laughs> like 
I, I almost rammed somebody off the road the first time I got cut off because that was my instinct was like, get them off the fucking road. They're dangerous. Um, I, uh, the, the way people drive in Seattle, it's like they all want to drive the same speed in every lane. They don't understand there's a passing lane. Um, it's very triggering. Uh, and I was working in retail with a bunch of like people that I don't know, like, I'm just not a huge, uh, materialistic person. I never have been. And to see the way people are with stuff like that, it was really hard. I didn't think it was important. I didn't feel like I was serving a purpose. So it was really hard for me to be motivated, but I did love my employees and I really, um, enjoyed mentoring them. So we lived there for about a year. And after having a few episodes, like really bad episodes of PTSD, some of it like separate and some of it together, which was intriguing, let me tell you. One night we both woke up, like it was really strange. She sat up in the middle of the night, she's screaming. Um, and she's like, kill him, kill him. And I sit straight up and I'm like, where? It's like, we both were on the same freaking page. I don't know what happened, but we literally were both struggling with processing everything we went through. She was a truck driver in the unit. She was in like a a truck driver unit. She was an 88 Mike. And they had a lot of combat um, experience. And we both were like stuffing that shit down, not dealing with it, like just trying to get on with our lives. And it wasn't working. So we sat down and decided, okay, this isn't going to work. We don't want to live in Seattle because it just seems like there's a lot of, um, I can't remember the term. We kept running into people that were really uh, stereotyping of people in the military, especially war veterans. And it was um, really frustrating. Like there didn't feel like a lot of patriotism in in Seattle. We even went to a Veterans Day parade and there was like maybe 14 people walking down the span of four blocks with a flower in their hand. And we were like, what the fuck is this? This is bullshit. Um, She was from the Kansas area. And there's a lot of military support in in the Midwest. And there seems to be a lot in, in the East Coast, too. And we were both like, we can't live in a place that doesn't have, like, supportiveness towards the military or veterans. So she's like, oh, I want to live closer to my family because she has two sisters and nieces and nephews. And they all lived in Kansas. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, you know, I loved her and I... I really wanted her to be happy. And I was like, fuck it. You know, I already moved across the country. Might as well try Kansas. So we moved to Kansas and I was able to get a full-time National Guard position there almost right away. And she worked as a professor. Um, Actually, she was working in a lab at Kansas State University uh, when we moved there. And I was in the Kansas Guard for quite a while but I ended up deploying with um, the Kansas Guard to Afghanistan in 2009. Wow. Well, I think we can dive into that story on the next episode. Um, this looks like a good place to stop for, for the second part of your story. 
Thank you for joining us for the second part of Jesse's story. For part three, tune into the next episode of the Homeland Heroes Salute. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.